Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, please grab it and open up. If you don't have a Bible, open your phone, click Bible in Google. Uh, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we're going to be um, spending our time this morning. Uh, I'm going to read verses 4 to 11 for us. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11. This is God's word. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the same one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. And to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Well, this morning, I have been invited to speak on the topic of the attributes of God. And it's important to to speak on the attributes of God because it's actually when we come to know who God is that we come to then trust him and live for him and live like him. Now, as I was thinking about um, this topic, I remembered I had actually written a paper on the attributes of God a a number of years ago. And so I I opened that document, and it was the worst paper I ever wrote. Um, It basically, I just, I literally just said, God is perfect in all his attributes. And then I just listed 30 attributes, and I hit period, and I sent it off. Um, So I was like, that's not helpful for this morning, because I can't just give you a list. So instead of spending our time looking at 30 attributes of God, or however many there are of him, I thought we'd just focus in on one. Um, One person, actually. Uh, I want to speak this morning on the Holy Spirit, And I think as we come to see him better, we'll actually come to understand how God plans to use us in discipling one another here. Um, This is why I'm excited to to talk about the Holy Spirit this morning. If you turn to John 14, 12, or you can read on the screen, Jesus says this. It's astonishing. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Then, then he expands on it just a couple chapters later. He says this in John 16, verse 17. No, sorry, six verse, 16, verse 7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, The helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is saying, look, it's actually a good thing I'm going away because it's actually going to be better for you. It's going to be to your advantage because I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Now just think about what Jesus is actually saying there. He's saying, yes, I feed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. I heal the lame. I raise the dead. 
I calm the storm. I'm incredibly compassionate to the lowly and downcast. And it's actually better that I leave you now. And my question is, how does that work? I think the answer is, is that it's better because now the, the spirit of God doesn't just rest on Jesus. It rests on everyone who belongs to his church. See, we, we're not given just part of Jesus' spirit. No, no, the, the full spirit of God that was on the Son of God now lives and resides in every Christian. And so we have what one theologian called the democratization of the spirit. He lives on all Christians in all places. He's at work here in this room on your Peloton bike putting the kids to bed at night. Lord knows I need help with the Spirit when putting my kids to bed at night. <laughs> he lives and resides in Mumbai. He works in Ukraine, in Seattle, even though they defeated the Blue Jays. He's still at work in Seattle. He's at work in all times, in every place, in every believer. And so it's to our advantage that he left us, Jesus says. Now, we can still affirm that mentally, I believe, and yet still feel some hesitancy and some doubt. And I think if we feel that way, we'd probably be feeling the same thing Paul feels here in 1 Corinthians. You see, the church in Corinth had been given spiritual gifts, these gifts and empowerings by the Holy Spirit to the nines. He'd empowered them to, to serve in incredible ways. They'd perhaps been more gifted than any other church. And yet, the church is a mess. They're cutting down one another. There's this hierarchy and competition. They're divisive. And, and so notice what Paul's approach is, though. He doesn't go, oh, you know what, you just need to pull back here and just... Stop trusting in the Spirit's work. No, he actually says in 12.1, he listens, he says this, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. He's not like, let's restrict the Spirit, let's, let's cut down on how he's at work in you. No, he's like, let me purify you. Let, let, me, let me refine you. Let, let me push you into a greater depth of knowledge so that you use these Spirit-empowered gifts in a profound and powerful way. So how does Paul purify the church? Here are my two points this morning. We're going to look at the giver of the gifts, and secondly, the nature of the gifts. The giver of the gifts and the nature of the gifts. And if you're like, wow, Daniel has the gift of brevity. I do not, because my second point has actually four points. So more like a five-point sermon. Anyways, here we go. First gift, the giver of the gifts. Look, look at verse 4 again. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then verse 11 says this, And all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Those are the verses we're going to focus at, verses 8 to 10, we're, we're skipping this morning. We're just going to give a big overall picture 
on the gifts as a, as a whole here. Now, I think when we think of spiritual gifts, we normally think of the Holy Spirit. And in a way, I think we'd be right. Right? So verse 11 says, And all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. So it's the, it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who gives spiritual gifts. But if you look at it more closely, I think you realize there's more to it than that. So verse 4 reads this. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. See, what we have here is actually the language of the Trinity. Spirit. Lord and God as a stand-in for the Father. Now, normally, when the Bible speaks of the Trinity, it does so in the background, right? There's not really these sections in the Bible where God's like, let me tell you about the Trinity. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Normally, the, the, the Trinity is in the background, but I'm going to argue this morning, it's specifically because God is a tri-personal God that the gifts operate the way they do. So, so let, me, let me try to show this to you. The, the Bible teaches us that there is one God. Now, that is not entirely unique to Christianity. There are other religions in this world that believe exclusively in one God. However, what is unique to Christianity is that God exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what the Bible says is that each of these persons is fully God, right? Jesus is not 33% God. The Holy Spirit is not 33% God. Father is not 33% God. Each is fully God, and yet there exists only one God, right? So it says they are the same Spirit. He is the same Lord. He is the same God. Now, how does that work? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It, it doesn't make sense. It's as one theologian put it. It's, it's like trying to explain a four-dimensional world to three-dimensional people. It, it's out of our complete grasp. And yet, as one theologian puts it, he says, I wouldn't want it any other way. I wouldn't want it any other way. He, here's why. The, the Trinity teaches us that different doesn't necessarily have to lead to division. Different doesn't necessarily mean divisive. See, we, we take diversity and, and we immediately push that towards disunity. Right? So, so we are automatically, people are different and we rank them. We, we elevate one or another. We, we, we want to know, well, which one's better? Which one's actually more important? But in God, diversity actually leads itself towards unity. See, what we have in the Trinity is we have three persons, each with different roles, accomplishing one perfect purpose. To magnify God. To, to glorify, praise, and adore the Godhead. Right? So, so think of how this works in salvation. So the Father plans salvation. This is how we, the Godhead, are going to save sinful humanity. It's then the Son who then accomplishes that plan. It's the Son who does what no human could do for themselves. 
And then it's the Spirit who then applies the Son's saving work of salvation to humans. So they come together, each with their own role, and, and one role is not any more important than the other. They are all absolutely necessary. So, so Bruce Ware, he wrote an awesome book on the Trinity. It's a short book. I commend it to you if you want to know more about this. He, he writes this. He says, The three persons are never in conflict of purpose, never jealous over another's position or specific work, never prideful over one's own position or work. They're always sharing fully the delight in being the one God and accomplishing the unified purpose of God. Here is unity of differentiation. Each divine person accepts his role, each in proper relation to the others, and each works together with the others for one unified common purpose. It is nothing short of astonishing to contemplate the fundamental and pervasive unity within this trinity. Now, if this is the God who then gives the gifts if this is the God who then empowers us as his church for ministry, what does that mean for us? So, so let me modify what Bruce Ware said and apply it to the church. The church ought never be in conflict of purpose, never jealous over another's position or specific work, never prideful over one's own position or work, and they ought always to share fully the delight in being one and accomplishing the unified purpose of God. Here is unity of differentiation. Each person accepts his or her role, each in proper relation to the others, and each works together with the others for one unified common purpose. It is nothing short of astonishing to contemplate the fundamental and pervasive unity within the church. You see, you see what is happening here? If we all are tuned to the same tuning fork, right? If we all come together with one purpose in mind, which is to magnify God and make much of him, then we need not be divided. So, so the triune God makes unity possible in diversity. But secondly, the tripersonal God makes that one goal, God's glory, accomplishable through love, through love. Um, it would be silly to speak of Eastern religions as having a God of love. That, that doesn't make sense. In, in many Eastern religions, God is a force. Forces cannot choose anything. For, forces cannot love. There, there's nothing in them that allows them to be loved. It would be silly to talk about Eastern religions as having a God of love. But also, the same would be true for many Western religions. See, if you only believe that there is one God and one person in that God, then they cannot also love. Love is an interpersonal action. It takes two, at least, to love. You, you, you cannot love nothing. You have to love something. And so if there is only one person in God existing for all eternity, then God, as his very own essence, cannot love. There's nothing to love. But if God is a tri-personal being, then 
love can be part of God's very own essence. See, for all eternity, what the Bible teaches us is that each person of the Godhead is delighting in one another, praising one another, glorifying each other, ascribing beauty to one another. And the way they do that is by loving each other, by serving one another. See, see, each member of the Trinity doesn't grasp glory for themselves. They don't try to elevate themselves above the others. No, instead, they humble themselves and prop others up. They ascribe worth and value and dignity and glory to the other members of the Trinity by laying aside their own belonging and worth and value and lifting up the others. So listen to the way C.S. Lewis puts it. It's, it's glory through service and love. Listen to what he says. He says this. In self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm not only of all creation but of all being. For the eternal world, word also gives himself in sacrifice, and that not only on Calvary. For when he was crucified, he's talking about Jesus here, when Jesus was crucified, listen to this, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, which he had done at home in glory and gladness. Let me explain what's going on there. Just leave that up on the screen for a second. When when Jesus comes to earth, and he's born in a manger, right, laying aside the glory that has eternally belonged to him, the glory that existed with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in heaven for all eternity, when Jesus lays that aside and comes to earth, being born in a manger, he takes on great humility, right? We, we would look at Jesus, Isaiah says, and it would seem like as though there is nothing special about him. He would have been considered lowly and insignificant by worldly standards. And yet Jesus, with that posture of humility, then then grows up, and what does he do? He gives his life for us. He, he, he takes on our shame and our guilt on the cross. He, he's raised up on a cross, mocked, hanged naked, for all to, to make fun of him. The world thinks he, nothing of him. And C.S. Lewis says, look, in that moment, God is most glorified. He's saying, look, in that moment, Jesus is doing in the outlying provinces on earth what he had always done. See, on the cross, Jesus is not taking glory upon himself. Instead, he's lifting up the church. He's saving us. He's magnifying us. He's drawing us to himself and so that we could be saved. God is most glorious, hear this, church, not after the resurrection. It's, it's, or not after the cross. He's not most glorified in the resurrection. He's most glorified on the cross because it's on the cross that he displays the greatest self-sacrifice. And that's what God has been doing for all eternity. So what does this mean about the way we use our gifts to serve one another? Well, gifts are intended to be an act of self-giving. They're not intended to make me look good or intended to prop me up. They're intended to make others look good and prop others up. True use of our gifts is taking what we've been given and using it at the cost of self-sacrifice to love and serve another. 
It's then we reflect the nature of our triune God. Therefore, if this is the triune God, again, who gives the gifts, what does that mean about the gifts themselves? So second point, the nature of the gifts, the nature of the gifts. Firstly, the gifts are universally distributed, universally distributed. Look at verse 7 again. Verse 7 reads, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each. Verse 11 says, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. If you look up the Greek word, right, the original word for that word each, do you know what it means? It means each. It, it means each. Right? So, so what, what, it's, what we're hearing here is that the Spirit gifts every person, not just pastors, not just elders, not just deacons, not just members of the church. Every individual who belongs to Christ is given a gift, a means by which they might serve others. Right? So, so what happens? So the, the Spirit comes first in the, in the work of salvation, he opens our eyes so that we no longer look at Jesus on the cross and go, that is hideous. No, we, we now see that in its true light. That is beauty and glorious. Can't believe that the creator of the universe would do that for me. Right? He changes our perspective about who he is so that we no longer now trust in our own accomplishments. We, we trust in the work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. So he saves us. Right? And then he indwells us. That, that same spirit indwells us. He gives us the gift, uh, not the gifts of the spirit, he gives us the fruit of the spirit. Right? So he's transforming us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. He begins to do that work in our lives. And then the spirit goes above and beyond that and he says, okay, now I'm also going to give you a gift. This supernatural ability that will allow you to serve the church. Now, I think we shouldn't be... Um, too specific about what all of these gifts are, right? So normally we take like, at least this is how I had it growing up, not in Jared's youth ministry, I'm sure some other ministry, where we do like a, a spiritual gift inventory, right? Where you're like, what is my gift? And we get all introspective about how God's created us. I, I think that can be helpful, but I, I don't think we should be um, too careful to box them in. Right, right. Sometimes God gives us just a, a renewed ability, right? So sometimes he, he takes something that already was true of us and he refines it and tweaks it so that we no longer use it to serve ourselves, which happened prior to our salvation, but now instead we use it to serve others. Instead of making us look good, we make Christ look good. So we... Um, we as a church uh, had the privilege of, of baptizing this individual a couple weeks ago. And I, I had the opportunity to kind of work through his uh, baptism process, uh, if you will. And um, before coming to, to Christ, he was an atheist. And he was incredibly intellectually gifted, right? He had all these arguments disproving the existence of God. And he was just a great thinker, had such a keen mind. And then he comes to know the Lord, and all of a sudden God redeems that mind and now uses it to actually defend Christianity. 
He's walking down the road holding a Bible, and someone goes, that's stupid. And he goes, no, no, let me show you. And his mind is at work. He's trying to convince them. He's giving a defense of Christianity, right? So sometimes God takes our existing abilities, our existing attributes, and, and redeems them for his purposes. Other times, God just gives us a brand new gift. Sometimes these are um, very situation-specific. They exist for only a certain time. Sometimes they last for a very long time. So um, uh, let, me get, let me give myself an example as one of these. So I, I um, feel like the Lord's called me to plant a church in Surrey. And um, there's been a, a lot of hardships in this planning process. I uh, feel like the number of hurdles, number of twists and turns that have uh, made things discouraging at times. And yet I feel like the Lord has given me a gift of faith in this season. I don't, I don't normally have this gifting. I'm, I, I'm a little bit of a worrywart. I'm, I'm concerned if things aren't going the way I planned. And yet in this season, for some reason, God's just given me this deep inner confidence, this faith that he's going to work everything out according to his purposes. Things aren't going my way. I'm like telling my wife, it's fine. God's going to be at work here. I believe in him. Do you know the God we serve? And then my wife, who has the gift of administration, she's also really helpful in this. She's like, yes, but have you thought about this and where we're going to meet and how we're going to do all these things? And yet God given us both of these gifts to, to complement each other. So, so my point is this, look, at any moment, every one of us has the spirit of God working powerfully in our lives. And he's gifting us with some sort of supernatural ability so that we can serve the body of Christ around us. The gifts are universally distributed. Secondly, they are freely given. Freely given. Verse 4 reads, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And verse 11 says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The word for gifts here. Uh, is maybe most literally, you could translate it as grace gift. It's a grace gift. It's undeserved and it's completely unmerited. And the Corinthians, and I think us too, have a hard time truly understanding the nature of a gift. Um, see, today, gifts are seldomly disassociated from personal merit. They're just not. We live in a, in a society that is completely achievement-based, right? So, so we give gifts when? When someone gets a promotion, when someone graduates, when someone retires. We give gifts at Christmas time if they're nice and not naughty, right? When someone does something special, we give them a gift. They do something really special, we give them a really special gift, and look, we re-gift gifts that we don't like. We give gift receipts. If you don't like it, just, just get rid of it. Go get something you do like. We, get, we have wish lists, right? If you really like me, then you'll get me this thing because this thing is what I think I deserve and what would make me happy. So we hear, yeah, God gives spiritual gifts. And we immediately think, yeah, but what have I done to deserve it? 
Like, okay, I get it. It's this great thing that goes above and beyond my supernatural ability. But, but tell me why I really got this gift, right? Maybe it was because I've been obedient for the last little while, God. You know, I've been extra generous. Why do, why do I have this gift? And what that does is it creates either this feeling of superiority or of despair, right? We, we begin, become proud, because look at me, I have this gift. It must mean I've done something to deserve it. And yet, Paul says, no, no, no. This is completely a gift. It is a grace gift. It's an undeserved, undeserved gift, Paul says. Earlier on in, in um, chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul will say this. He says this in I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up. Don't be proud in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? Then he says this, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul says, look, everything you have is a gift. Your intellect is a gift. Your health is a gift. The parents you were born to are a gift. The DNA you have is a gift. The time you live in in history is a gift. Look, you could have a, an, a mathematical mind. You can be a high-ranking accountant. Uh, and that's great now. You can have a lot of status in the world now. You're born a 1,000 years ago. They need one accountant to count the king's money, and then they need farmers. What you have been given in this specific time is all a gift. And so that should produce great humility in us. We didn't deserve this. And because it's a gift, we should then share it with others, Paul will say. So thirdly then, gifts are wholly interdependent. That's a terrible title, wholly interdependent, but let, let me explain what I'm, I'm trying to get at here. Verse 5 reads, There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. The word for service there is the same word we get the word deacon from. It's the word diakonia. The point Paul is making is that gifts are not to prop ourselves up. They're not for personal gain, but they're truly for the benefit and service of others. So he will expand in verse 7. He will say, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The common good. Not to serve our own agenda, but the mission of God as a whole. It's only when we come together, each using our gifts, that the church is built up the way God intends it. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, will say something very interesting in uh, Romans chapter 1. Paul in Romans is writing to this church in Rome. He'd never visited them, but he has plans to visit them. He's warning them. He's giving them a heads up. Hey, I'm trying to come to you. And he'll say this. He says this in verse 11. For I long to see you. Why? That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Look, God's given me these spiritual gifts, and I want to share them with you. I want to bless this church that you're a part of. And then Paul will correct himself. He kind of backs up. He goes, hold on. That is, verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged. 
by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So Paul's saying, look, yes, I have these spiritual gifts, but you have spiritual gifts too, and I need you. Listen, this is coming from the greatest missionary in the history of the world. Paul's going, I cannot be who God intends me to be apart from you using your gifts to serve me. Help me. I, I need you, Paul is saying. See, look, there are only two individuals who have all the spiritual gifts. One, Jesus. And two, Jesus' bride. The church. The church has all the spiritual gifts. And so when we come together, it's then that we can actually accomplish the mission of God. So, so um, Paul will say this in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. He will say this, you are not lacking, he's talking to the church, you as the church are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, as a church, as a whole, you have exactly been gifted what you need to be who God intends you to be. Nor normally in a church, there's this 80-20 rule um, that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Now, talking to Jer actually this morning, he was just sharing how this is not true here. How this church is coming together each trying to find ways of contributing for the, the common good, each using the gifts God has given them. One person here, one person there, and that's so encouraging. And yet, there are probably some of you who are still on the sidelines. Some of you who have been gifted by God, empowered by God, and we need you. The church needs you, and, and you need the church you need teaching, but we, we maybe need your mercy or your generosity or your wisdom or your hospitality or your leadership or your whatever. <laughs> I, was, um, I was praying this week for this church that the Lord would give you more worship leaders. Just going, God, you've heard Jer's voice. It's not great. Send him more people to sing. <laughs> like God thinks he sounds great, but God's way more gracious than the rest of you. But look, we, it's, it, we all need to come together. That's the only way we can actually accomplish the common good. It's then that we can be who God intends for us to be. We need the whole. We're each dependent on one another. Um, Richard Lovelace, he was an expert. He's a historian. He was an expert on revival. These moments in history where God worked in powerful ways and just droves of people were coming to faith all in one time. And, and Timothy Keller summarizes Richard Lovelace because Richard Lovelace is uh, uh, long-winded, let me put it that way. And, and he, he says this, Richard Lovelace describes a phenomenon common to churches before and after awakenings and revivals. Ordinarily, various Christian traditions and denominations tend to strongly emphasize one or two ministry functions while being weaker in others. For example, Presbyterians are historically strong in teaching and doctrine. Pentecostals and Anglicans 
in their own ways in worship. Baptists in evangelism, Anabaptists in community and care for the poor, and so on. But then he says this, during times of gospel renewal, however, these strengths are often combined in churches that are otherwise one-sided. It's when we'll all come together, each contributing our strengths, that we'll see God reach the lost in this city. Lastly, the gifts are powerful revelation. Powerful revelation. Verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 12 will say this, and there are varieties of activities. Literally, there are varieties of empowerings, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. You see, we can hear, yeah, we're all supposed to jump in and serve, and yet we can think, I don't know where I fit in in all this. I, we, we go internal, and we go, I don't, I don't know what I can contribute. What I have doesn't, doesn't seem all that important. Things to be, seem to be fine with, without me. What, what good am I here? And, 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 and Paul says here, yes, you're right, actually. You, you don't have anything to contribute in and of yourself. But the point is that actually it's God who's going to empower your weakness. God actually delights most in using you when you're at your weakest so that his strength shines all the brighter. Right? So verse 7, he says again, to each is given the, this is what a spiritual gift is, a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Right? It's in your weakness when God is empowering that then you shine out the Spirit in your life. That people go, wow, I see. That is the power of God in her at work. So where, where do you start then? Start somewhere. Just start somewhere. Start serving somewhere. Look around you. You can pray into this if you'd like as well. And just say, God, where is there a need? Where do I see something that is lacking in the body that I can contribute something to? Maybe it's not a specific area. Maybe it's just a ministry to a specific person. God, give me eyes to see who you'd like me to serve this morning or this week or this year. And then press into that. And don't be so concerned if whether or not everything seems to fit and align perfectly with your spiritual gifts. See, what will happen is God will naturally lead you in one direction or another that actually highlights the things he's most gifted you in. Right? So at our, at our church that I'm part of, Christ City Church, we have a connect team. These are kind of people who are hosting, uh, they're welcoming people, they're, they're the, the people that you would first see if you're, if you're new, or if you want to get connected into the life of the church, they're the people you'll see. And we have two totally different people on that ministry. One lady, she's like incredibly administrative. She's like a list and a systems person. So she's like, oh, you're new. Let me plug you into all of these systems. Let me get you into these workflows. We'll get you connected with this person and this person. You'll sign up here and then everything will be uh, wonderful. And then we have another person and he's supposed to be at the connect desk. And he's like, I don't want to stand at a desk. I want to go talk to people. He's just wandering around, talking to this person and this person and this person, just trying to connect them into the life of the church. And we're like, man, you need to go stand at their desk. And I'm, he's never there. And I'm like, but praise God for the both of them. 
Because they're both using the gifts that God has given them in two totally different ways, but both to build up the church. So just serve somewhere. Find a need and throw yourself in there. Let me, let me end by this. I'll uh, give you this illustration here. Um, someone shared this, and, and I heard it, and I thought this was really good. They said, imagine you met the prophet Elijah. Right? So Elijah is this Old Testament prophet, was said to have the Spirit of God powerfully at work in his life. Right? He's raising the dead. He's prophesying of drought, right? He's competing against the prophets of Baal. He calls down fire on Mount Carmel, even though the altar is completely soaked in water, right? That's Elijah. And now, let's say you meet Elijah, and Elijah goes, hey, um, I'm Elijah. I'm like, cool, you're Elijah. I'm Daniel. Uh, Nice to meet you. And Elijah goes, hey, when are you from? When are you from? And I go, I'm from 2022. And he goes, oh, my goodness, you lived in the age of the Spirit. You, you lived in the age of the Spirit. So you're telling me you are one of those people who had the Spirit of God on you just like every other Christian did, right? He's like, I just, it was only me who had it back then. But now he's everywhere. Tell me what it was like. T- tell me what it was like in the church for the Spirit of God to be on every single believer. And you go, well, we talk about him. I mean, we, we discuss him in our community groups. We know, we know a lot about the Spirit. And Elijah would go, come on. I, I, my encouragement to you, church, is to desperately need the Spirit. Ask God what he has for you. And if he's calling you to do something and you go, God, I have no idea how we would go about doing that. That's exactly where God wants you. Let the spirit powerfully empower you to accomplish that thing he is calling you to do. Let him be magnified. That's what I want to see here in North Vancouver. I want people to come and go, man, I do not know what is going on there, but it seems as though something special is happening there. Maybe it's the Spirit of God at work. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for this church. I pray you would magnify yourself through them. Father, I pray for each and every person here. Lord, I pray for those who know you as Lord and Savior. I pray that, Lord, they would press into the gifts and abilities and talents that you have empowered them to use. Father, would they serve the church for the common good? Father, I pray for those who maybe are here and are unsure, or do they have a gift? Lord, maybe they're unsure if they're saved. Father, I pray that you would reach out to them powerfully now by that same spirit and save them. Draw them to yourself, Father. I pray you would help them to throw themselves onto Jesus, who gave his life for them so that they might be adopted into your family. Father, um, you love your church. You love us far more than we can imagine. And so I pray, God, build your church here in North Vancouver and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.